Welcome to Hot Topics in Kidney Health, brought to you by the National Kidney Foundation. Each episode, we highlight the latest in kidney research, bring you up-to-date news in kidney care, dispel myths, and answer your kidney health questions. When we hear the word research, most of us think of innovative breakthrough treatments and technologies. But applied clinical research could not be possible without another type of research called basic science research, in which scientists study fundamental processes of the human body. In this episode, we'll learn what basic science research is and how it applies to the area of kidneys and kidney disease. Take a listen. Welcome, everybody. I'm so excited to be here today. My name is Hannah Wesselman. I'm a fourth-year PhD graduate student at the University of Notre Dame, where I study kidney development and disease progression. Prior to my more basic science experience, I did work with kidney patients at the University of Pittsburgh Center for Research on Healthcare, and that really kind of started my inspiration and and my my admiration for the kidney community. So I'm really excited to to talk about science today, ranging from basic to clinical, and I'm blessed to to be joined today by Dr. Bond. Ventry and Dr. Kramer, and I will pass it over to Dr. Kramer to start our introductions. Thanks, Hannah. And I'm really excited that you are the person who instigated this podcast to talk about the importance of basic science research for advancing kidney care for the 37 million people in the United States who live with chronic kidney disease. So I am actually a professor in public health sciences and in the Department of Medicine within the Division of Nephrology at Loyola University, Chicago. I'm a nephrologist because my mom was a dialysis nurse in the early 1970s and actually helped to start some of the very first dialysis units in Northeast Indiana. And she was actually a home dialysis nurse. And and I would actually get to skip out of school sometimes and when I was in junior high and go to people's houses and see these gigantic dialysis machines on top of, you know, blue shag carpet and actually receive letters from some of the patients up until the time I graduated high school encouraging me to help people who live with chronic kidney disease because they really wanted that people in the future wouldn't have to live like them and have a better life. And it's what my mom also wanted as well. So I'm really excited that I've been able to advocate for increased funding for kidney disease research to help people who are living with kidney disease and so the people who come in front of them will live better lives and maybe be able to avoid dialysis or have better dialysis options and more access to kidney transplantation. So right now I'm actually the immediate past president of the National Kidney Foundation and um, have been able to work with Dr. Joe Banvantri to advocate for increased kidney disease research funding. So I'm going to put the ballot over to Dr. Bonventry. Thanks, Holly and Hannah. So I'm Joe Bonventry. I'm the chief of the kidney division at the Brigham and Women's Hospital and professor at Harvard Medical School. I've also been co-chair of the preclinical sciences work group for the National Kidney Foundation Roundtable. And to say a few things about myself, I was actually an undergraduate engineer, an engineering physicist, who then came to graduate school and looked around on what to work on, and the kidney sort of grabbed my attention. And so I actually came into the kidney in a different way than Holly introduced, but really from a a fundamental level of fascination of how this incredibly engineered organ did all the things that it did. And so I've spent my life trying to figure out how it does it under normal conditions and how things go wrong and with disease and try to develop ways to monitor early on the disease process and to make kidneys in a dish 
and also to help with developing therapeutics for the kidneys. So I'm very pleased to be here and excited about the time we'll spend together. Absolutely. No, this is this is a great kind of start to the conversation. I especially want to point out, you know, that we have great expertise with us today, that, that this this idea of basic science and clinical science, that we're kind of bridging that gap and, and have a nice perspective from both sides. So as I mentioned this thing, basic science, it could help to maybe have a more basic definition of basic science, for lack of a better word. So Joe, could you tell us a little bit about what basic science is and, and why is it important and, and why is it applicable to patients today? Yeah, well, those are three things that we'll spend a lot of time on. Uh, so I, I'll just introduce with the, the introduction of the sort of what it is, as you say. You know, it's really the study of fundamental principles uh, that allow us to learn how living systems work and how disease processes change the way these living systems work. So um, in the case of the kidney, basic science tells us how the kidney works to filter the blood and excrete waste products that the body has to get rid of. It tells us how the kidney is involved with uh, maintaining blood pressure in the normal range and how it regulates many components of the blood as well as how the kidney also regulates fluids in the body. Basic science also tells us how the kidney makes hormones which affect the bone and blood content of the body. And finally, again, to reiterate, basic science not only tells us how things work the way they're designed to work, but what goes wrong when a disease process occurs. And I think sometimes when I think about science, it can be helpful to think about it in a in kind of a spectrum in terms of how applicable the, the question or the, the finding is to human health. And the, the further away you get from human health, typically that's kind of what I would consider basic science. And so, for example, in my work, I work with the zebrafish as a, as a model organism uh, to study kidney development specifically. So while the kidney in a zebrafish is going to look a lot different, right, than a kidney that you would find in, in a human, that those kind of basic fundamental processes that you were talking about, blood filtration, you know, how do we how do we make these tubules that make up the kidney? What are the genetic processes that are required to do that, um, that these are fundamental basic questions that are really important to answer in order for us to to get to those more applicable human studies. Um, So I thought that was really, you know, really great insight. Um, So taking that kind of that next question is of of thinking about science and, and in general, science is the asking and answering of questions. So you touched a little bit on what kinds of questions we ask about, you know, how does a kidney function, but what what methods are used to, to answer these questions? How do we get at them? And, and what is that for, for basic science specifically? So building on what you just said, Hannah, with zebrafish and and for the audience that may not be familiar with what zebrafish are, but if you know anything about collecting fish, they're pretty much the standard fish that you'd see in a fish tank, you know, that's not exotic. So in terms of thinking about basic science, one of the things we do is we try to simplify the systems. And when we simplify them, we lose some important factors that are important for the integrated human system. But if we focus down enough and ask the questions in a precise enough way, we can then get answers that we can extrapolate back to the human system. So in addition to zebrafish, some people study flies, which have these very primitive forms of kidneys. Or other people study worms 
that have an excretory system that is each one of these at different stages of evolution or the way things develop over time, they give us some insight into how the the final product in humans is actually pieced together and how it functions. So one of the things that basic science does is it really tries to simplify the system in one context to use as many different species of animals that are basically informative because every animal has to get rid of waste products. And so each one tells us something. One area of research in, in basic science as it relates to kidney is to identify every cell. Organs are made of cells. We're all made of billions of cells. And, and one area is the identification of every cell and what makes that cell do what it does under normal conditions and how the cells change when there's some kind of disease process. It also tells us how the cells interact with one another under both normal conditions and disease. You know, another thing it does, and we're involved in this in our laboratory, is we use stem cells that we can generate from skin cells. So you can take a patient's cells from the skin or even from the urine, and we can convert them back to stem cells. And those are the ones that we use. And we use those to make mini kidneys. And by having mini kidneys, we learn, you know, what goes into generating those kidneys. We're trying to understand how nature puts together this incredibly complicated organ by taking it piece at a time. And we can generate part of it. And more recently, we've generated the other part. The kidney comes together from two different sources during development. And so now what we're doing is putting those two pieces together to generate what we hope at one point we'll be able to generate is a new kidney in a dish, basically, and that we could then give to a patient if that patient is in need of a kidney. Now, along those same lines, we're also studying, for example, whether we could ultimately transplant a kidney from a pig into a human. And this is something called xenotransplantation. You may have heard about this in the news. There's been some recent activity in these areas. And, and there are a lot of barriers to it. But, you know, it's a very exciting area to think about in the context of what the future could bring. And in particular, there are so many patients has been mentioned with chronic kidney disease or that has progressed to, to kidney failure. And those patients have transplantation as a choice, but there aren't enough organs, human organs. And wouldn't it be great if you could have a little pig farm and put in an order and be able to, three months later, get a pig that has the characteristics that would allow a surgeon to transplant that kidney into you. The National Kidney Foundation Hot Topics podcast just came out with an episode on this exact topic of putting putting a pig kidney into a human. So definitely encourage listeners to, to go back and, and listen to that as well for a little bit more depth on that exact subject. So we've talked a little bit about these other methods, you know, whether it's organoids or, or kind of these, these small kidneys in a dish. We've touched a little bit on model organisms like the zebrafish, among others. And I think that the reason why we, we use these, again, is just to connect and try to take that back to, to improve kidney health. And ultimately, that is, that is the goal of many basic researchers out there. So the, the first thing that comes to mind when we think about these, this bridge between basic and clinical, in my lab in particular, we use 
the zebrafish to to look for or to test chemicals, to look for for new therapies or potential things that could help kidney function improve. So can you think of any other examples or ways that basic research in particular has informed that clinical side of things? There are many ways just to follow up on what you just mentioned. Not only can you test in these organisms like zebrafish or in these mini kidneys, you can test if something works or protects the kidney. You can also test if a drug that's coming out to treat another disease is going to be toxic to the kidney. And this is a very important aspect to it because there are many drugs being developed for patients with cancer or patients with heart disease. And the kidney is a major organ along with the liver where there's those drugs tend to be excreted or metabolized. And under those circumstances, we're always on the lookout to do no harm. And so we can develop or use these in vitro systems. We call them in vitro because they're outside the body. We can use these systems to predict whether or not we need to worry about patients' kidneys when they're given these drugs. So that's one example. There's plenty of others. A lot's going on these days with, with the communication between the GI tract, the gut, and the kidney, uh, in particular with chronic kidney disease. Now, some of those studies can be done in humans, but uh, a lot of the foundational studies have been done in animals. And in particular, you can have animal models whereby the kidney is made to have less oxygen, for example, and under those circumstances, that mimics what happens when someone's blood pressure goes very low or when there's a, a surgical procedure or when the patient develops an infection. And you can model those systems in animals, and then you can treat the animals with a variety of different kinds of drugs to come up with a therapeutic that you can then test in humans. And really, it's basic science is sort of where it all starts. Basically, it provides the fundamental understanding and ideas from which new therapies will come from. By, again, looking at these systems, we always want to get closer to the human. That's why, in some ways, these systems like mini kidneys that are made of human tissue have been so interesting to the field, because previously we, we could just test them in rodents, let's say, but now we can actually test drugs for efficacy, how, how well they work, or whether they're toxic in systems that are made up of human tissue, fundamental human cells. That's really important as we, again, kind of restress this getting back to improving kidney health. And, and the closer that we can get to modeling human health, the better ultimately those outcomes will be for patients, which is, which is excellent. So speaking of these human patients that we're trying to help. Let's talk a little bit more on the other side of things, on this clinical side. So what is what is clinical research? And, and Holly, maybe you could share a little bit about what clinical research looks like and kind of the overview of it. Well, clinical research is a very, very broad term because it can mean that you're maybe just utilizing data that has already been collected from people. It could be survey data, information on blood pressure and you know, age, sex, race, and height, weight, and kidney function, and you analyze the data all the way up to doing like clinical trials where you're having some people, you know, randomly get an intervention while another group does not get the intervention, and then you follow them over time. 
And kind of in the middle of that is what we call a cohort study, which means you're kind of following people over time to see who does and does not develop disease or disease progression and what are the factors that they had that could have accounted for the disease development or disease progression. So it really is extremely broad. There's also a type of clinical research that we call more like implementation research where you know something works. We have data that a particular drug or some sort of program works, but it's not being utilized in the clinical setting. And so it's how can you get people to take up this new drug or to implement this new program. That's also a form of clinical research, and we call that implementation implementation science. So it's clinical research is, is much more broad, but we're, we're not about the animals or the basic cell, but I'm just so fascinated that Joe can take urine and make those cells become stem cells and makes me wonder if I chose the right profession because that just sounds so cool to be able to do something like that. Would you like to be a part of changing the future of kidney disease treatments and care? Join the NKF Patient Network, the first nationwide kidney disease patient registry for people at all stages and types of kidney disease that aims to improve their lives through research. When you join the Patient Network, you'll be asked to share valuable personal experiences via survey questions that are focused on your health, lifestyle, and activities. All your answers are used to study how kidney disease affects people's life in the real world and ultimately find a cure for kidney disease. The NKF Patient Network also benefits you by providing a variety of resources. You will receive individualized education specific to your life, resources for peer support from people living with kidney disease, and access to the latest clinical trials and research opportunities. Join today at nkfpatientnetwork.org. If you have questions or would like to talk to someone about the NKF Patient Network, call NKF Cares at 855-NKF-CARES. That's 855-653-2273. So, and you touched a little bit on this boundary in terms of implementation. I think of that in terms of why aren't, if we know that something works, why wouldn't we? And so when I worked a little bit in Pittsburgh, one of the things that we were trying to implement was this kind of educational programming on living donor kidney transplantation, for example. We know that living donors, you know, we have more of them in terms of availability. And depending on the situation, it could potentially perform better or be more quickly available to a patient compared to that of a deceased donor. But what's what's the barrier and why aren't we engaging with patients and, and teaching them about that more? So it was more of an educational side of things, but what are some of the boundaries or, or the, the barriers or challenges and why we aren't implementing these things in, in clinical research in general? What are some of the boundaries that, that folks are facing? Well, that goes back to basics of human behavior and that we are governed by what we call mimicry, right? So unless you are kind of an outlier as far as your human behavior, you're not going to change your way of doing things unless you see a lot of other people changing theirs too. So it's like a cascade effect. You have to get one person to do it consistently over and over that other physicians, providers will mimic that person and so on and so on and so on. So if you look at clinical care guidelines for anything, cardiovascular disease, kidney disease, it takes about eight years before you see any really substantial change in the way that clinical care is delivered based on guidelines, even with level one evidence that just has to do with with human behavior. You know, people aren't going to just read something and then go out and change their behavior if they don't see everybody else doing it because they don't want to look like 
they're not doing what everybody else is doing, right? We want to feel like we fit in and that we're doing what's right. And we really kind of value what other people are doing. So that's one of the reasons why implementation science is really important because it's it's trying to get past those barriers and get people to change their behavior in order to improve clinical outcomes. Unfortunately, there's not a lot of emphasis um, in implementation science with regards to funding mechanisms. And I think it's a shame because, especially for kidney disease, we have really learned so much in the past 10 years because of the work of Dr. Bonventry and people that he has mentored, that we really understand kidney disease so much better. And we do have new therapies that, in my opinion, if we implement those things early enough, we could really prevent, I bet, 40% of patients from going on dialysis during their lifetime. That's my guess. Absolutely. That's a really good point in terms of this this implementation and these barriers that exist for the clinical side of things. Are there equal or similar boundaries that exist on the on the basic side of this? Yeah. So I think if one had to choose one thing that was the biggest challenge we have on the basic side is really the workforce. It takes a number of years for someone to develop as a basic scientist in kidney disease. And because science has uh, progressed so much over the years, it takes much longer now than it did 20 years ago, 25 years ago, to be able to make a contribution. It takes much more now to get a report in a reputable journal than it did 25, 30 years ago. If you if you look about some of the things that we published 30 years ago and look, you know, look at it now, you can see that the bar is much higher. And that's particularly one of our main concerns is that we don't have enough resources going into the support for these individuals who are, who, who you know, take longer to develop. And, and since I've commented, that's really fundamental to the whole process of development of new ideas. You know, we can learn a great deal from patients directly. But we also learn a great deal from these models that we talked about. And we need people to, to work in those areas. And we need a diverse workforce in many ways. We need a, a, a workforce that is representative of the community and the community of patients who develop these diseases, which is across every population. But, but there are certain populations that have a higher incidence. But we also need diversity in terms of physician background and PhD background and pharmacy back. You know, we need people from all sorts of backgrounds, but we need all of them. And in particular, one of the concerns is that the amount of physicians that are going into this area, in particular in basic science, has has reduced over time. And so that's, I would say, of all the things that I worry about in terms of the future of nephrology and advancements I just wish we had mechanisms to better support people at an early stage because there are other things that people make decisions on and and, uh, they have a lot of other responsibilities. And and so that's one of the major things. Science is moving so fast that I'm not worried about the science. You know, it's like drinking from a fire hose, a term that we use a lot in Boston from MIT in particular. Um, you know, you're, you're drinking from a fire hose. There's so much coming at you and you have to be selective in what you choose to spend your time on. The study that we did uh, that ultimately resulted in the, in the production of these mini kidneys took seven years. 
And more recently, we've produced what we call a ureteric bud organoid, which comes the other half of the kidney that hooks up to the bladder and the ureter. And that took one incredibly good fellow three and a half years. And there hasn't been a paper yet out on it. So in order to do these, we need to build on our infrastructure. We need people to recognize that basic science is fundamental. It's not the only thing. It's clearly not the only thing. And we learn a lot from patients directly. But frequently, when we learn from patients primarily, and we made some incredible, even the APOL1 story, which is telling us a great deal about why people of African ancestry are more prone to some aspects of, of kidney disease. We're taking that back to the animals and trying to do studies that we can't do in patients in order to understand that so that then we could take it back to with therapies in humans. While it's not the only thing, it's, it's really critical. And, you know, one, one thing on a scientific level that is another exciting area and a challenge is that when we treat with drugs that can be effective in the kidney, we use them and they're dangerous for other organs. So they, they have side effects, we call it, you know, in other organs. And so I think what will happen because of studies at the basic level we're going to find agents that we can hook these drugs up to that will selectively target the kidney where they can be effective. So we may have some drugs that are going to be very effective in humans that we can't use right now because they have toxicity to other organs. So that's a challenge, but that's one that I can see is going to get solved. Yeah, and I, I think I especially appreciated uh, the point that you made about this kind of feedback loop that exists between basic science and clinical science. And you mentioned the APOL1 story, which again, the National Kidney Foundation also has a podcast uh, on that exact topic. So if folks are interested in, in more depth on that subject, they should definitely check that out as well. But this idea that that it's identified as, as a biomarker or a potential uh, or a gene of interest in humans and that by taking it back a step that we can understand its function among, you know, the variants or the different versions of that gene that exist in human populations. And we can use that to inform, again, clinical research and, and how do we help patients and, and be more effective at it. So this, this feedback loop is something that I think is really worth appreciating and, and noting, which is great. And you mentioned this appreciation or understanding of, of increasing this workforce and how do we encourage that? And I think that the National Kidney Foundation in particular has done a really great job in advocating for increased funding. So I think that it's, you know, Holly mentioned at the top of our conversation that there are one in seven or 37 million approximately Americans that have chronic kidney disease. And then the additional 80 million are at risk of developing it because of things like diabetes and hypertension. And so if we look at that number of, of, of the prevalence in our community, and then look at how that relates to government funding, the numbers work out as of 2020, the last time, you know, I kind of I've checked into this, is that the NIH or the this governing body, this this government institution that can provide us funding is spending about $20 per patient in terms of research, not in terms of, of Medicare and Medicaid, etc. 
but it's really not a, a ton to kind of drive these discoveries that we're so excited about. You know, how amazing is it that we can target the kidney in particular, that we can grow cells in a dish that can inform, you know, the way that we treat patients. And so um, to advocate for this increased funding, I think will do um, a great deal of benefit in terms of, of, of recruiting people to study kidney disease and to grow this workforce, um, as you mentioned, which I think is, is important. And, and the National Kidney Foundation has indeed recognized that. Speaking of which, these research roundtables that were conducted in 2021 so that the National Kidney Foundation can kind of make these research recommendations, we should talk a little bit more about what was the outcome of this. So we'll start with you, Joe, if you could talk to us a little bit about what were these, these roundtables like and you kind of focus more on the, the basic research priorities, but what were the, the findings of these discussions? Many of the things that we've talked about were discussed. What these roundtables were was basically, and Holly was responsible for putting this together, you know, we're, we're leaders in the field in all aspects of basic science on the one hand, and then clinical science on the other hand. So there were equal representation, two groups uh, that met individually and then met together and came up with a set of recommendations that really are sort of along the lines of what we've been talking about. We haven't been talking about every one of those, but you know we need more research that goes into genetics and uh, in terms of understanding disease. We need more better models to create you know models which more closely represent what we see in humans. We need on the clinical side, you know, implementation science really needs to be shored up. You know, we talked a bit about biomarkers, but but also just generally people working together and how could effectively on the clinical side, how can we get more collaborations and more consortia uh, to be able to go the second step once we have the the drug, once we have the, the intervention, then how do we prove that in fact it, it works. And then how do we get information from the patients in those studies, again, back to the, to the laboratory? We talked specifically, you know, in that context, there are different kinds of diseases like polycystic kidney disease or systemic lupus. And, and each disease or diseases of the glomerulus, the filters of the kidney and diseases of the tubules of the kidney, each has its own sort of nuance and both on the clinical side and the basic side. And then we wrote a document and Holly transmitted that document. It's been published. And we also went to the NIH, the National Institutes of Health, and the NIDDK, the branch involved with kidney, kidney funding, uh, kidney research funding and uh, made the pitch. You know, I think it wasn't that it was completely unexpected from their side, but there were a few things that we emphasized that they hadn't really been emphasizing. And and I think uh, more than the specifics of the individual areas, you know, we basically tried to convey the notion that it wasn't put more money into basic research and less in clinical research or clinical research and less in basic research, it was more to raise raise the level of the water so that all the ships float at a higher level. And so we need money both on the basic side, we need money on the 
the clinical side and we need significant attention on the workforce side. Absolutely. And Holly, could you tell us a little bit more about how these roundtables kind of came to be and a little bit more on the, the, you were really the driving force and the inspiration to kind of get this important discussion off the ground. Could you tell us a little bit more about the background? Yeah. So I asked the National Kidney Foundation if we could really put some effort into advocating for research funding. And we really have a great person who is heading government relations named Sharon Pierce, who is just really phenomenal. And she said, okay, you know, let's put together some experts you know, across the country to really talk about where are the areas in both basic science and clinical science research that if we put funding in them, we could really move patient care forward within the next five years. So this isn't like, let's invest in this in 20, 25 years from now, we'll have answers. You know, we're looking for areas that are ripe. So I was actually in China giving a talk. It was one of the very biggest pathology labs in the entire world. They have seven electronic microscopes. There's really nothing on the walls or anything. And I'm walking through this hallway. I look up and there's a huge photo of Dr. Bonventry. <laughs> and I'm like, aha, that is who I need to get to help me with this research roundtable. And so I called him up one day and I said, hey, this is, gave him my pitch. This is what I want to do. And he was like, sure. I mean, he didn't even think about it, you know, probably one of the busiest nephrologists in the country. And he was like, absolutely. So I think that just shows you the dedication of our leadership for this project that, you know, that we're really all concerned about research funding for both basic and and, and clinical science research. And so we brought together experts across across the field, Dr. Uh, Kathleen Sustak, who's just phenomenal. She was the other co-chair for the basic science group. And we brought together experts, we brought together patients, caregivers, and we had several phone calls where we just basically discussed, you know, what are the areas? And, and actually the basic science, I think, was probably the most uh, had the most discussion because there just are so many areas um, where there are groups of people who are really moving forward. And one of the things we talked about was the need to develop and fund infrastructure because you might have people at Northwestern who have expertise in this area. Then you have over in New York, there are people who have expertise in this area. And if we could bring these groups together and have them work together with one big cloud where all the data could be shared for the, all the genetic and all the omics data, all the data that's being pulled and has already been collected and have people work together. But you have to pay people. You know, people don't work for free. You have to cover people's time. You have to have money for all the computational science and, and all the laboratory space and things like that. It doesn't come free. So like as you said before, right now, we're spending only about $18 per patient for kidney research about $305 for cancer research, $50 for cardiovascular disease research. But if you look back on like the history of funding for, um, for research, you know, it started with patient advocates. It wasn't like a congressperson's like, oh, hey, let's throw $500 million at cardiovascular disease research. That's not how it went, right? So like in the 1940s, we saw President Roosevelt die, and it came out later that was because his blood pressure was so high, right? That wasn't initially recognized, but later it was recognized. And because of that, there were patient advocates who had also lost parents to stroke at an early age, said, why are we not you know, putting more money in research for cardiovascular disease? 
And so Congress spent a ton of money that developed like the Framingham cohort study that didn't come cheap where people, 5,000 people were followed over time with multiple measurements of all sorts of different stuff, right? And then you had the National Cholesterol Education Program because statin medications hadn't been discovered, but we needed implementation science. We needed to educate people about, about treating high cholesterol, which doesn't have any symptoms. And hundreds of millions of dollars were put into that educational program. Then, you know, we had President, uh, now President Biden's son died from brain cancer. And there was the moonshot, which put many millions of dollars back into cancer research. And now we know because of that moonshot initiative, which put a lot of money into cancer research, that mortality for cancer has actually declined a lot over the past 15 years because of research funding. And because people like Dr. Bonventry, who do basic science in cancer, have led to new discoveries for cancer. If we were to put that same money that's been put in the moonshot into kidney disease research, we could keep people off dialysis and we could keep those people who are on dialysis, keep them living longer. Right now, on average, right, everyone's different, but on average, someone who is 40 on dialysis has the same expected lifespan of an 80-year-old who doesn't have kidney disease. This has to do with the history of, of funding for research, which is really based on who's advocating for it and the history around it. So, you know, if you're a patient or a patient family member and you say, what can I do to try to, you know, help people with kidney disease? Call up your congressperson, call up your senator, join the National Kidney Foundation's um, patient advocacy group. Um, or join the NKF patient network so that you can be involved in clinical research and clinical trials to move things forward. I mean, I think where we need people the most are patients, patients and family members. We need their voice to get people to recognize that this largely asymptomatic disease is killing millions of people every year and reducing quality of life. And there are extremely smart people out there. I mean, I think some of the smartest scientists are really, really attracted to kidney disease because of its complexity. But we just lack funding to fund these labs, to give infrastructure for genetic, you know, genetic analyses, and to attract young people to the field. You mentioned the collaborations that patients can engage with with the National Kidney Foundation. I've now been a part of two congressional meetings where we, the National Kidney Foundation does a great job in this past two years, it's been over Zoom. And I've had the opportunity to, to meet with both of my senators and multiple representatives to chat about the importance. And I'm doing this side by side with kidney patients, which is really exciting. So if, if patients are listening to this and are interested in getting involved, the Kidney Advocacy Committee is a great way to get started. As I said, the National Kidney Foundation does a lot of the work of setting up meetings and you have the great opportunity to meet with other patients and, and family members that have had similar experiences and meet with scientists maybe like myself. And I'm, I'm that's the highlight of the event for me is to get to hear stories from patients because ultimately I hope that my work can help them out and, and improve their, their quality of life. Absolutely. So we talked about this, this funding and the need to drive funding. And there's this other side too of patient involvement, as we've mentioned. So outside of this kind of push and this excitement that we have for improving kidney health, how do we communicate to patients or what do you say to patients to perhaps encourage them to get involved with, be it clinical studies or advocacy more directly? Yeah, I think that that's something that clinicians may not necessarily feel all that comfortable 
But I am doing it more and more with my patients and saying, you know, giving them an email. I give them a website, kidney.org. Tell them to just go there. That's a great place to find information and get pamphlets and watch videos, but also that they can get involved in, in advocacy. So I think that is something that we all should be doing. If, if you have the passion like I do about funding kidney research, by all means, talk to the people that you see in your clinic. Or if you are a person living with kidney disease, ask your provider, how can you get more involved? But you can also just go to the National Kidney Foundation website. There's also local affiliates that you can reach out to as well. And I think that's a great call to action as we as we reach the, the end of our, our conversation here. You know, we've talked about the importance of basic research and how that can inform clinical research, both of which are equally important and in desperate need of funding. If you're interested in, in getting involved, you know, kidney.org is a great, great place to start. And with that, I'd like to, to open it up. Any final comments or anything that, that either of you would like to say before we close out? You know, the kidney is just a great organ and we want to keep it working in the way that it was designed to work. Yeah, I think that there is so much hope out there. You know, meeting people like you, Hannah, that are so smart and so enthusiastic, I think it really makes me realize that um, Joe and I are doing the right thing by really, you know, moving this advocacy issue forward because there's so many bright people out there who we know we are going to attract into kidney disease research and we are going to get increased funding. Absolutely. Thank you both so much for sharing your expertise. It was a pleasure to to learn from both of you today. Thank you so much to our audience for listening. And I look forward to, to seeing where research takes us. At the end of the day, you know, research is a really great source of hope. Um, and I'm so hopeful for, for the future of kidney disease. And I know that we can continue to to help patients through our science. So thank you so much. Today's shout out goes to Kylie Wetzel from California, who celebrated her fourth kidney transplant anniversary on June 8th. Congratulations, Kylie. Thank you for listening. Make sure to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. You can also email us directly with your comments and suggestions at nkfpodcast at kidney.org. We hope you will join us next time. And from all of us at NKF, we wish you good health.